Welcome to episode 12 of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper Jepson, and I'm glad you're here. I haven't been here for a while. It's been a while since I've released my last podcast, so let me catch you up. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read aloud an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. So this podcast is really my creative response to that desire. My intention was to put out a podcast every week, and I shortly realized that that just wasn't in the cards for me. So now I'm doing the best I can to put out a chapter periodically, and we'll leave it at that. I'm not entirely sure where this podcast will go, but I've heard from a number of you that you appreciate hearing my voice read aloud the chapters that I wrote, and especially appreciate the riffs that I do at the end of each chapter. So as long as I'm hearing that, I'll keep going. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud if you want to continue hearing it and having it piped into your email every time I put out a new episode, or subscribe to it via iTunes. You can also follow my blog on She Changes um, or my Facebook page, and you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at shechanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 12, Naked Cake Woman. I like someone who's a little crazy, but coming from a good place. I think scars are sexy because it means you made a mistake that led to a mess. That's a quote by Angelina Jolie. When I first began my program to learn coaching, I was a skeptic. I spent an entire weekend with a room full of strangers feeling uncomfortable because I was pregnant for the first for the second time, still fried from graduate school and wondering what the hell I was doing with my life. At the end of the weekend, the two leaders announced an exercise that was going to reveal ourselves to ourselves, showing us parts that were either unaware of or kept tightly guarded. I think I rolled my eyes and muttered something to no one in particular. This group had been working pretty closely together for three full days, coaching and being coached repeatedly, so we all had lots of time to make observations and get familiar with each other. We broke into small groups of five, and the idea was that each member was going to be discussed openly in front of everyone, one at a time. The person being discussed had to just listen and not contribute. Brutal. The object of the discussion was for the other four members of your group to decide a nickname that best describes the quality they wanted to see come and play more in your coaching, a coaching superpower or a strength that is being too tightly managed. Having arrived at this nickname, They would write it on a name tag, and your assignment was to coach from this place during the next month and report back. When it was my turn to be discussed, a flurry of conversation erupted. I don't remember much about it other than the laughter and a lot of consensus. Finally, someone reached for a name tag, scribbled something on it, and then slapped it on me. My name tag read, Linebacker. And as hard as it was to go through that process, like awaiting the lot cast the lot cast by a jury's ruling, those four people gave me the gift of a lifetime. They showed me myself, the essence that had been peeking out like sun rays behind the clouds of being too much. I am that linebacker, even as I detest all things football. 
It seems many people find this valuable and worth capitalizing on. But for me, claiming that bull in a china shop inside myself with pride is a new thing altogether. Most of my life, I'd heard words flung in my general direction like overbearing, aggressive, and even an onslaught, giving me the sense that I was out of control, too much, and generally not appropriate. My parents used to tell me to cool my jets, and a colleague at work used to say that I didn't just ask questions, I interrogated people, sometimes literally backing them up against a wall with my energy. But the day I got slapped with that name tag was the day I started owning that part of myself. Fuck it. I felt so free, so liberated, like I'd walked over hot coals and had been reborn and anointed with ceremonial oils. They wanted a linebacker? I'd show them a fucking linebacker. Game on. At the end of that four-month coaching program, I remember drawing a stick figure of a woman on a hot pink sticky note. I still have it. The drawing was pretty rudimentary, but in my mind's eye, she was crystal clear. She was part Amazon, with legs that were muscular and well-defined. In one hand, she carried a machete. On the other hand, she pointed at the viewer like, You there! Her, her gaze was laser-focused, not malicious, but fierce and unwavering, and she had curly hair that was wildly extending from her head like snakes. I called her she Years later, having left my corporate job and happily settling in, settled in with She Changes, I got another clue about this piece of me. At the time, I was still working for my home office, and when the mail came out, our dog Milo would bark like crazy, absolutely convinced that the mail carrier was a potential intruder. Good dog. One day, I was rifling through all the junk mail, credit card offers, and catalogs, and just, and just about to dump the lot into the recycling bin when one caught catalog caught my eye. I flipped through its pages and bam, I saw the image of an exotic priestess sitting on a throne in what I can only imagine was an incense-infused Bedouin tent in Morocco. The gaze of her eyes reached out from the page and grabbed a hold of me, boring into my soul like that scene in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty when Sean Penn's character comes alive in his photograph and beckons to Ben Stiller's character to come and find him. But it was crazy. The dress the woman had on was totally not my style and was way overpriced. I'd never even heard of the catalog, so I tossed it. And then two hours later, tired of being haunted by this woman's gaze, I dug out the catalog, ripped out the page, and taped it to the wall of my closet. She began whispering to me from the closet about riches, power, leadership, and being in command of my life. And then cool, strange things began to happen. I gave myself permission to want more, and I started to see I was worthy of more. I started talking about being naked, really unleashing myself, and doing things that scared the shit out of me, like writing and speaking with more honesty and grit and fire. I started to feel like the last vestiges of my comfortable corporate skin were sloughing off me and I was emerging from that old shell of myself bigger, bolder, and braver. In a session with my coach, I heard myself say that I was tired of eating cupcakes and pretending that was good enough. I told her I wanted more. I wanted to eat the whole cake naked without a fork. I felt like I was poised, sharpie in hand, to give myself a new nickname, this time a self-appointed one, that I could stick on myself right next to linebacker. It just so happens 
I was also test piloting a new woman's writing experience I had designed called In Her Words 2. The idea was for women to address a particular question each week from three different perspectives. First person, journal. Second person, letter. And third person, story. The topic for the first week was daring. And the question was, what do I need to disrupt? I played the I don't know game for a while. And then this story poured out of me. The woman was clearly comfortable in her own skin. Why else would she be naked on the deck of the boat among all the other tourists? She might as well have been alone for all the attention she paid to the crowd that summer day. She was oblivious to them, and that oblivion served as a guide, instructions, if you will, to the others to just ignore her nakedness. No one told the captain or reported to her to, her, to the harbormaster. They just accepted her neither averting their eyes nor openly staring at her. She had created a new normal without ever uttering a word, and now she was simply part of the crowd, accepted in the face of all odds. As the boat pulled out of the harbor, the woman kept her eyes trained on the horizon in her own world. She seemed to be looking for something, but not in a frantic or desperate way, just a steady one. She must have blinked, given the brightness of the sun, but it was almost imperceptible, that movement. As the day wore on, the woman reached for a fishing pole. Without shifting her gaze, she, casted her she cast her line out and affixed the pole into the bracket of the deck. And then she got another one, cast, and did the same. And again, until there were many poles at work, their translucent lines disappearing into the water behind them. She continued to stare out at the horizon, this time a small smile playing on her lips. And then it began. The marlins started jumping, making big arcs in the blue sky and falling back down to the water amidst explosions of sea spray. It was exciting and scary to watch. The fish were massive and the lines were pulled taut, but still they held. It was almost like a choreographed act from one of those sea parks in Florida, except there were no trainers in the water with whistles, and the marlins looked frantic, not tame, like wild things fighting for their lives. When those words streamed onto the page, I was a bit stunned. Clearly, it was coming from a deep place that I had just begun to taste and sniff out. But this woman scared the shit out of me. Or did she? An odd familiarity and even a hint of pride surfaced when I considered her, as if I was acknowledging we were kin for the first time. Not being an angler myself, I immediately did a Google search for the significance of the marlin and what it represented. I learned that the marlin, popularized by Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea, is a symbol of the ultimate opponent, demanding the best from those brave enough to try and bring one in. In my mind, I was naked on a boat fighting the ultimate opponent publicly, Naturally, I found a reason to dismiss this information as being of no consequence to me. Up until this point, I hadn't really owned the fact that I was a leader, and, like the Marlins in the story, I could feel myself fighting for my life. At the same time, the realization about leadership was pulling me in. In the farthest reaches of my heart, I knew I was a leader, but my head kept reminding me that leaders looked and acted a certain way, Certainly not like the exotic priestess in her tent, a linebacker, or a naked woman fishing for marlin on a boat. 
So you can imagine my discomfort when this woman in the picture, whom I started to refer to as Naked Cake Woman, began staring down at me from the walls of my closet every day. Through her presence, she insisted that I own who I am as a leader in a much more aggressive manner. Some days I wish I had banished her to the recycling bin. But as my friend Jen says, once you see something clearly, you can never not see it again. I continued being the guinea pig for my own writing process, this time writing a letter to myself, presumably for my naked cake woman. You need to move forward with ideas before they are fully baked. It's time to strip down and get naked. Stop dancing around and creating the change you really want to create, women leading the way. Stand up and t stand up taller and hold a sign that reads, Follow me, I've got a plan. Light more fires for women leaders. Blow on their embers until they're red and hot and then stoke them until the flames leap high into the night sky. Stop hiding behind yourself and start making some noise among women leaders. No more being quiet. No more being modest or self-effacing. It's time to kick some ass cast off the bow lines, and see what you can do. Stand behind your worth with two feet solidly planted and hold your head high. It's time to stir things up, poke some holes, ruffle some feathers, and grab the microphone. It's time to stop playing small and pretending that cupcakes are satisfying. It's time to roll up your sleeves and eat cake naked without a fork. It's time to dig into the main course. This is not a fluke or an errant dream. It's your calling. Now it's the t is the time to release the hounds. Head right into the epicenter of change and don't be content to play at the fringes. You're on to something and women are going to gravitate to it. You will pull them in almost by standing still. Expect that you will surprise yourself with your audacity and boldness. Expect that you will feel more vulnerable and less comfortable. Naked, cake, public focused, follow me, Marlins, epicenter, a new normal. As obtuse as those messages were, I knew what it all meant for me, even though I didn't fully understand the details. Because of my naked cake woman and her rather insistent appearance in my life, I was starting to not only examine my identity as a leader, but also to unpack my relationship with money, realizing that I had a lot I had a lot of self-limiting beliefs and some really wonky stories preventing me from even envisioning myself making more money in my business. I started to talk more openly about these feelings, the feelings of something more as a means to taste what they felt like in my mouth. The first time I got to practice this was with my friend Kate Northrup. Kate had just moved back to Maine and was gathering a group of women to discuss Danielle Laporte's book, The Firestarter Sessions. The first night, something interesting happened. We went around each saying a bit about why we came that night, what we were facing, and what we were wanting, and what we needed. When it came to me, I paused, considering how publicly I wanted to share all the messages I had been getting about myself and where I was headed. I dove in, blurting out that I wanted to eat the whole cake naked without a fork, and that I was tired of eating cupcakes. I told them about Naked Cake Woman and the Marlins that had been haunting me. The woman in the circle listened, eyes wide with interest. Not surprisingly, I would soon become known as Naked Cake Woman. I don't even remember telling them my given name. And then each woman followed in a similar manner, offering a metaphor or a piece of her story 
that spoke to her essence or the part that was showing up most in her life. We continued until we each had a code name like quarter note and Spanish and rower woman and house lady, all infinitely more memorable and revealing than our pedestrian names. Those code names we offered were similar to the name tags in my coaching program. It was an invitation to name the essence that might get overlooked at first blush. What I'm talking about here is identifying yourself by a passion or quality rather than a circumstance or a role. The latter would change on a dime while the former is enduring, representing the heart on fire. Those are all the things about yourself you could stay up all night talk all night discussing. They may point to the work in the world you would happily do for free, and you'd stand a good chance of making a fortune doing it because it comes so naturally. Those are the places you are effortless and shine the brightest. Those are the things that matter. It's where passion intersects with an innate ability to lead. It's where the masculine energy revving inside you has finally been thrown into gear. Anyone who has hiked the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail will say that it's fairly common practice to eventually drop, adopt a name other than your own. Why? Because when you find yourself on that journey, you strip down, sweat it out, and dig deep into reserves you didn't even know you had. You start to see yourself more clearly, finding parts you had never even known you'd lost. But there's something sacred, even if it's by chance, about adopting a trail name. Like my being slapped with a name tag, we all face a moment of choice to claim what others have been seeing in us all along. It's like a covenant or an oath to do the name proud because it has been entrusted to you, to live into it, to take care of it, and to take heart. So that is chapter 12. And here are some of my thoughts I've had since writing that chapter. Um, it's making me think of a book that I've recently picked up um, by Tara Moore, who is another CTI coach who wrote this great book. And her book is called Playing Big. And I just need to pause for a moment because I love this book, but I really don't like the title. And I had to sit with why I didn't like this title, Playing Big. And I'm finally, I've heard this used, it, it's a very common phrase we use with women. I hear it, my own clients come up to me and say, I just want to play bigger in my life. It's the opposite of playing small. I get it. But whenever I hear that phrase, playing big, it makes, it, it starts with the assumption that we are not already big. And that by playing, we're putting on an act, we're trying on a costume, or we're, we're moving into something we aren't already. So I just want to offer that caveat of that title, that in my work, and I'm, I'm assuming, and having read Tara's book, she assumes this as well, we are already big. So there's no playing here. It's In my lexicon, it's about embodying it fully enacting it um, versus trying it on, letting it out more. So this book, Playing Big, Tara talks about the need that if women are to lead more in this world, which is like me, is her greatest wish. She says we need to, un she says many things, but one of the things that feels most relevant is that women need to unhook from praise and criticism more. 
And that has just been playing through my head so much these days. Because any woman, if you think about it, any woman who stands out runs the risk of criticism. We have seen that play out so clearly in this last election cycle. Um, And I'm sure you see it play out every day. The woman who speaks out um, puts herself in a very tenuous position. Uh, So it makes sense that we would think twice before doing that. So she has us disassociate um, from criticism, insisting that feedback that you get from other people is always about the other person. And she goes so far as to say, yes, I said always. Because when I was raised in the corporate world in the early 90s, we were taught feedback is a gift from me to you. Feedback is a gift. She kind of calls bullshit on that. And she says, actually, the feedback has nothing to do with you. It's always about the other person. And that all also goes for praise. So while we like to hear praise, and I love every time I put my writing out there, I speak on stage and I hear praise for my work. That just nourishes my soul. But I can see how I could be careful with what I'm putting out there, whether it's writing or speaking, so that I can keep getting more of that praise. So she talks about, I don't actually agree fully with what she's saying. She talks about feedback always being about the other person, and I ascribe to the belief that something my coach told me once is there's a kernel of truth in everything. So her advice to me, which I love and I try to practice, is get the kernel and throw away the rest. So if you hear something that hits you hard, that makes your heart beat harder, that's hard to be with, get the kernel and then throw away the rest. Notice what might be true in there. And nine times out of ten, the reason I want to get the kernel is because it has to do with my humility. It has to do with me keeping my my sword sharp. It has to do with me constantly revisiting my humanity, which keeps me connected to other people. So get the kernel and throw the rest out. And it reminds me of a, I had an, uh, an experience of this in an unlikely place this past weekend. I was skiing with my kids, downhill skiing, and my, I was with my youngest, who was behind me, and I heard him fall. So I slowed down and I turned around and I looked at him. And when I did, my ski pole got fetched up in my skis and I fell. And this was on a completely flat straightaway, by the way. It wasn't on the downhill part. And when I fell, I realized, oh, shit, I've never fallen on skis before. I don't know how to get up. And I, but I knew there was a trick. I knew it took some, and I was kicking myself that when I got on skis, the first thing I had hadn't done was practice getting, falling and getting up. And I had been skiing for, um, about a little over a year. And I remember not falling the entire season last year and not saying anything to my family members because I didn't want to jinx myself. And I realized in that moment when I was like a bug on my back with my skis all akimbo that, that I had put a lot of pressure on myself. The longer I didn't fall, the more anxiety I had about the moment when I did fall. So there I was on my back trying to get desperately trying to get right up on my skis again. And a woman skied by and said, do you need some help? 
And I said, why, yes, I do. I have never done this before. And I know there's a trick. Can you help me out? And she said, sure. You want to put your skis this way and get them pointed, you know, there, dig in your bottom ski, put your pole there, prop yourself up and lever this. And, and pretty soon I got myself upright. And I noticed in my body that I had this tremendous sense of relief that, well, that's over. I've done that. And I got myself back up. And I realized I had been carrying anxiety about falling. And as I was skiing down the mountain, I thought, how often do I let myself fall? And as a result of not letting myself fall, how how safe, how careful am I being? How cautious am I? How much faster could I go? How much more bolder could I be if I had confidence that if I fell, I would just get back up again? So I committed to practice skiing, and I'm going skiing, practice some falling and getting up, and I'm going skiing this weekend again, and I hope to practice that repeatedly. And that's sort of a metaphor I hope you're getting for life of letting myself fall because that's where you learn and that's where your humility lives and that's where your humanity, that's where your human experience lives. Um, and so the final thing that I'd lead you with is a phrase. I saw my friend Kate, I referenced Kate in this chapter. I saw my friend Kate speak once and she took questions for the audience. And this woman asked, you know, she said something like, I don't know, uh, I don't know what to do, and I was hoping you could tell me. And Kate said, you do know. And this woman started to say, well, I don't know, and she, she kept saying, you do know, you do know, you do know. And I loved her tenacity in that moment, because Kate is fierce, um, and, but she doesn't bring that out as, as that often. And I love seeing her be so insistent of, you do know. You actually, you do know. And so I want to leave you with that because so many times, so many times, just me, like me not knowing what that naked cake woman or the marlins on the boat, I could have said, I don't know what this means. But the thing is, I did know. I did know. I was just scared of what it meant. And so every time you hear yourself say, I don't know, check in to see if that's actually true. Or for what's really happening is that you know, but you're just scared shitless of where it will take you. Or in my example, that you might fall down. So I'll leave you with that. Okay then, thanks for listening to this episode. And here's to living unscripted, having access to more of who we are, and letting our bright light lights shine freely. Go ahead, be luminous.